Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Chris Anderson, editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine. He is the author of The Long Tale, the subject of an earlier podcast, and his next book, scheduled to come out in 2009, is called Free. Chris, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Chris, you laid out some of the arguments behind Free in a recent article for Wired that we'll link to at econtalk.org. What's the idea? What's Free now, and why is it only going to get better? There's really, um, there's really, you know, I think you phrased it right, which is, you know, what's what's new about free? Um, you know, we've had, you know, there's basically old free and new free. Um, old free is, you know, basically been around since, you know, since the free lunch, um, which which was, by the way, uh, San Francisco saloons in the 19th century would give you free lunch if you bought beer. Um, it, is, it is the razor and blades. It is the free checking, etc. It is all a cross-subsidy of sorts where, where one thing is free, but you pay for another. Um, you don't necessarily uh, you know, spend less money in the end, but, you're, uh, but the, the, you know, the psychologically powerful word free is invoked to change the you know, behavioral economics of the purchasing decision. Um, we can talk more about, about you know, the, 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 the Increasing range of, of cross subsidies and clever ways to 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 make things feel free, but that's not new. What is new is what's been basically enabled by the internet. Um, the, the the internet is the, is if you look around, first of all, you know almost all services um, and, and content and products on the internet um, are available in a free version, and almost everything is free um, to, to the consumer. And Google doesn't show up in your in your credit card bill. Um, that is uh, that is um, the main driver, the main reason why everything on the internet is free is basically digital economics. That um, you know, for the first time in the history, we've had a, a basic an economy where all the inputs, um, in this case, storage, processing, and bandwidth, are basically falling in price or having in price every eighteen months. Um, it's as if the you know the, the factories of the of the 19th century, you know, uh, where there was steel was falling in price, you know, um, at that rate, where labor was falling in price, you know, where, where, you know, where electricity was falling in price. It's like all the inputs to the Internet economy get cheaper every year. At, and that has, that has basically enabled a, an economy where whatever you're doing today is going to be cheaper to do tomorrow, and eventually it's going to cost so close to zero that you might as well call it zero, and thus an economy built on free. Well, I think it's more than that. I, I want to mention to my listeners that, that Chris has encouraged me to be really hard on him and tough and ask really uh, rude and, and challenging – no, not the rude part, just the challenging question part. And I would encourage all the listeners, as they often do uh, in the comments to this podcast, to raise questions to help Chris write his book because um, it's in process. But let me ask you something about that, about the falling price. It is a, a dramatic – it's the pace – and the, and the uh, relentless, relentlessness of it that is so um, impressive and unprecedented, it would be like the price of steel falling dramatically every month for years, which would be very, very unusual. The price falls on many real resources due to innovation and technology, but they don't uh, fall this relentlessly at this pace. What's puzzling, though, 
and I think which is gives to gets to your real insight, which I which I like. What's puzzling is that that would usually just mean falling prices, and I think there's sort of two there's sort of three things to think about. One is we could observe falling prices, we could observe low prices, and as you point out in the article, low is not the same as free psychologically. So the leap to free, which is really quite extraordinary, uh, is a different thing. It is driven by the technology, but it's not just that because the technology alone would seem to suggest just cheaper and free is much, much better than cheaper for us users. So I think what's going on, as you point out in the case of the email story, why don't you you tell that, the Yahoo, uh, Google competition, uh, the real costs underlying free email are not free. They're quite substantial. The servers, they're falling, but they're quite substantial. So talk about what happened between Yahoo and Google in that competition and why free did triumph. Absolutely, and, and, and you know, I, I think you've constructed the, uh, the the challenge well there. Um, you know, just before I tell the story, just a, a couple of clarifications. Um, we're obviously talking about the marginal cost. Um, obviously, the capital cost of of you know big server farms is still very high, but because they become so much more powerful every you know with every with every you know tick of the technology uh, clock, they can serve more people, and so the marginal cost um, on, on, on that kind of a unitary basis falls falls lower and lower. But so so let me give that example in in, in the case of email. Um, um, 2002 2003, Yahoo is the leading webmail provider. Uh, they charge 29. They they give you I, I believe um, um, four megabytes of email capacity for free. That's ad supported and um, if you want 25 megabytes they charge you $30 a year um, they then hear rumors that Google is going to get into the market um, now they had competition before there's hotmail there's uh, there's AOL there's there's uh, there, there's others Comcast etc but um, Google uh, is going to come in um, by looking at the under they hear that Google has is looking at the underlying cost of of creating an email service, and that is basically storage more than anything else. And they say, look, you know, the underlying costs um, are falling um, even faster than Moore's Law. And they're actually, you know, the, the cost per 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 per, uh, per um, a megabyte is falling at about an, having about every 14 months, not 18 months. Um, so Google says, well, we're going to we're going to enter this market and we're going to disrupt it by doing one thing that no one else is doing. We're going to give away not. Four megabytes, not 25 megabytes. We're going to give away a gigabyte, and then they went to two gigabytes, and for free. And so now Yahoo's like, okay, now how do we beat that? We can't beat free because you know. So Google's basically taken price off the table. Our our 29 dollars for 25 megabyte thing versus two gigabytes for free looks silly. So so we just we just valued it at zero. Okay, but that just equals Google. How do we go further? And what they and they looked at that that same that same curve that you know the falling cost of providing the service to the average individual and increasing value of that individual both in terms of you know whatever whatever services you can market to them their their um, their loyalty to the broad network of Yahoo sites um, you know possible advertising um, opportunities and they said okay well the value is going up of the consumer and the cost of serving that consumer is going down so we're going to the only way we can beat Two gigabytes for free is unlimited gigabytes for free. And so Yahoo then introduced that. They say, we give you unlimited capacity for free forever. 
And, you know, that, that is only possible. The only way they were able to, you know, to basically take this march to the bottom and take it all the way to zero and just take price off the table was because the underlying technology trends made that, if not a profitable proposition today, it would become a profitable one tomorrow. Basically, the curves played to their advantage. And it was not a question of whether, of, of whether a company should get to infinite capacity for zero price, but when. Who was going to get there first? Yeah, of course, there is one thing better than free, and that's being paid to open an email account. Um, and of course, we may get there. Uh, that we may, that, we may, that get may there. happen. And yeah. people are paid. People are paid to do things they value all the time. Um, if you uh, if you join a uh, uh, certain survey activities, you get a free computer or a free television. There, there are all kinds of ways that people are are being um, rewarded for joining these groups of people. But I, the point I want you to emphasize, which I think is the key, are these sort of, they're loosely called, I don't really like the phrase because I think it's often misused, but uh, network externalities. Or a better way to say it would be economies of scale, that, that an extra user on uh, your email account uh, service, such as Yahoo's or Google's, it's not just that, well, it's a little bit better to have one more. It's that if you have a large number, uh, you can reach them and access them and advertise to them and do all kinds of things. That that means that one person really uh, – uh, that looking at a, a customer as an individual is not really the right way to do it. You want to look at, at, at your ability to marshal large numbers. And right. so, for example, you know, a lot of people emphasize the virtues of being first into a market. I think that's sometimes overrated because latecomers can often – learn from early comers' mistakes. But if it's important to be first, then in that situation, giving the good away or uh, paying people to use your good to build up a base of users that would have uh, the value that that can produce in these markets is really the way to go. Yeah. I mean, what, what people often forget about digital economics, and digital economics, by the way, are not just Constraint to digital products. It's it's any 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 um, any any service or product where the where the you know initial development costs may be high, but the marginal cost of manufacturing and production are close to zero. What people forget about that is that is that you know you you, you they, this this economic model almost requires you to maximize your reach. Um, because, because you know, take. I mean, Bill Gates understood this in the beginning. You know, developing Microsoft Office costs a lot of money. The best way to make that money back is to spread Microsoft Office as far as possible to you know, basically, so that everyone on the planet is using it. And you just set your price so that 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 becomes, or use other methods which we won't go into here, so that that becomes possible. On the internet, um, you basically, um, you know, Microsoft had the you know the you know digital economics allowed them to distribute. Or to manufacture the product for low marginal cost, but the distribution was a whole other matter. They distribute in stores and boxes and things like that. On the internet, distribution becomes a zero marginal cost or close to proposition as well. So web businesses are all about scale because scale um, because you know um, because scale costs nothing. And what scale enables is you to, you know, is, is a range of business models from advertising to what we call freemium, where you, where you charge a tiny fraction 
of your user base, the most engaged ones, a price for a premium service and give it away to everyone else for free. But you get you get those network effects, you get those kind of viral effects, and 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 we've never really seen a uh, you know a business before where that was possible. I mean, you know, the notion of a free sample in the real world, sorry, in the real world, that was a Freudian slip. Yeah, and bricks and mortar. In the world of atoms, you know, yeah. if you're if you're selling muffins, you can give away you know maybe one percent of your muffins for free, um, you know, to sell ninety nine percent. In the digital world, you want to do just the opposite. You want to give 99% of your product away for, for free because it costs nothing to do so, so that you can sell a premium version of one, you know, to 1%, and that 1% can subsidize everybody else. Oh. And, and, that is, and that is just really, you know, this is really the first time. I mean, there's some analogies in things like pharmaceuticals, yep. um, et, et cetera, but, but, but even they have distribution scarcity. The internet is the first time we've had sort of the, the sort of you know low margin of the near zero marginal cost of manufacturing plus near zero marginal cost of distribution. And that's the unique combination that really kickstarts free as the as the sort of dominant business model of this economy. Well just uh, at a footnote, when you say that it's the opposite in the digital economy you want to charge one percent and give it away to the ninety nine percent. You'd like to charge ninety nine percent and give it away to the one, but competition among alternatives usually is going to force you to give it away. And I think that's one of the lessons here, which I find so exciting, which is just the power of competition. Right. Uh, that because the Google Yahoo example being a, a really good case, in in a way, there really are only two players. There's two large players. As you say, there are other smaller players that are, have somewhat... Actually, Google is, is, I believe, a weak number four. A weak number market. four. Okay, so there's, yeah, I mean, you know, Microsoft and AOL are still large, believe so, it or not. So we have a handful of players, but even with a handful, a handful is enough because of the technology's speed in, in evolving very quickly. Uh, you, if you don't lower the price, you, come, you take the risk that you will be not just doing less well down the road, but you might be uh, out of business uh, in that segment of the market. Exactly. I think we have to coin, have to coin a phrase. Maybe you could help me with this. Um, <laughs> Yahoo got freed. Someone basically set the market value of email to, to zero, and, 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 and Yahoo had no choice but to respond. Um, it's, it's actually a fascinating. In, in the case, you know, basically, my proposition is that every industry that, that can become digital, will become digital, and every industry that is digital will become free. So that sooner or later, virtually every industry is going to have to compete with free or become free one way, one way or another. Um, the interesting uh, you know, sort of, uh, um, twist on that, which we saw from the Yahoo example, is that it's easier for the newcomer to be free than it is for the incumbent. So Yahoo had, let me, let me make up some numbers, let's say Yahoo had 100 million email users. If they said you get infinite capacity for free, they have to buy acres and acres of storage capacity and new server capacity to, to satisfy this new demand with no revenues coming in, by the way. Google, as a newcomer, they can say the same thing, but because they have almost no customers, they can buy you know, a few dozen servers. It's an experiment. And, and a few dozen servers and basically promise the same thing with, with, much, with much lower economic consequences. So in a, in a sense... You know, the, you know, the newcomers can, can introduce free and disrupt the market much more easily than the incumbents can respond because, the, because you know, because migrating an existing user base to free is more costly than creating a new exi- user base on free. Well, it's a little exaggerated because, you know, Google, Google isn't uh, the corner store challenging Walmart. Uh, Google's a rather large player, so it, it is possible 
and I'm sure it is what actually happened, that when Google started to offer free, uh, their user base expanded not just a little but, but quite a bit. And they did it in a smart way. Yeah, it turns out email is one of those things that you know because of the uh, the, the namespace, the you know, scarcity in the namespace, yeah. and you know, and legacy issues about your address book. The people don't switch email that often, so it was it was basically a safe bet on on Google's. They could they could they could basically throw this grenade into the you know into into the marketplace, recognizing that the, that the that the that the economic downsides were limited. But they did it carefully. Remember, in the early days, you couldn't just sign up. That's you had right. to be invited, and that was That's a very clever right. thing. It it gave it a little cachet. It made people, you know, want to try to find out how they could get into it. And it probably I didn't think about it at the time, but it limited the expanse, uh, the Indeed. expansion a little bit. Indeed, indeed. So, so they, that, that's 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 interesting. But when you look around, um, and we should talk a little bit about about the difference between free and one cent uh, uh, yeah. as well. Because one I, of my I, questions. Probably <laughs> a good point there. But before we come back to that, when, when you when you look around at all the industries that have becoming, they're getting freed. I mean, it's, you know, obviously software. As software moves to the web, software goes from something you buy to to a, to a, to a site you visit for free. So software obviously goes free. Content obviously went free. But look at services. I mean, you know. Um, so, you know, once upon a time, you would have like a divorce lawyer, right? And then you'd go to a divorce lawyer and for a, and for a, you know, uncontested divorce, it would be, I don't know, $2,500, etc. You know, now you go to a website and there's, you know, there's, 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 you know, I think there's one site called 123divorceme.com, which is great. And, um, you know, it's like 25 bucks, you know, maybe it's 50 bucks. I don't know, just, just some, some filing fee, etc. So basically there's, there's a service, uh, you know, legal, uh, you know uh, uh, the services of a lawyer that have been turned into software, and because it's software, it inevitably inevitably um, becomes free, or, if the, or 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 at least the service is free, and all you're paying is the court fees. Look at tax accounting. You know, you go to into it, and you can fill out your taxes for free. Look at travel. Look at you know a travel agent. Look at a you know a brokerage. All these services used to be expensive propositions um, offered by professional experts. Now they're software, and now they're free. Well, they're close to free, so let me play skeptic for a minute, and we'll, this will lead us into the penny versus free uh, discussion. Skeptic says, come on. You know, there are a few things that are free, email, uh, some lousy piece of software in its beta version, um, et cetera, et cetera. But actually what the Internet's done is take a lot of things that were incredibly expensive and just made them cheap. So like, let, me give you, let me give you my favorite example of this that um, is uh, – I think an example of what you're talking about, but does show some of the limits. If I want to buy a hardcover book, uh, in the old days, I could go to my bookstore, which would be a, usually a, a place that might have 10, 20,000 books. Now I can go to a Borders or a, a Barnes & Noble that has 100,000 books. But I could go to Amazon that has millions or any of its competitors online. And let's say I want this hardcover and it's, you know, it's discounted nicely. It's $15. But I can also go to half.com. And if I go to half.com, the book's not a new book. If it's been in print for a while, I can usually find that hardcover book for less than a dollar. Often, uh, when I want to go read uh, history, say, uh, a history book that's been out 10, 20 years, th th they're so inexpensive. They're so inexpensive that I thought, you know, some of these folks are selling these books for 50 cents and 75 cents. One argument would be, well, they're making money on the shipping costs. I don't right. think so. These are hardcover books. They're a little bit heavy. And the shipping rates are quite reasonable. I think mainly what they were doing was building up a reputation as a reliable seller. They thought, I want to get into this 
into eBay or Half.com or one of these other uh, reselling activities. And the way you're successful there is to build up a reputation. One of the keys to success, obviously, is to build up a reputation. How do I do that? Well, I need a lot of customers. So here's an example where the economies of scale are very strong, and I'm willing to, quote, lose money in the short run and make money in the long run, which is what some of these, what I would call the digital economy is often is often about. Or I want to, I'm willing to lose money on this activity, as you say, and cross-subsidize it effectively by selling advertising or or creating a larger uh, network of people to interact with each other. So that is true, and I think it's very powerful, but the books aren't zero. They're yeah, 75 cents. Yeah. It's just really cheap. The software's not 400 or 800 or $1,000. To get your own right. web page isn't a $20,000 expenditure. It's $100, which is glorious, but it's yeah, not I don't quite think, the I don't same. I've identified a, an example that, that, anyone, any, that anyone would put in the free taxonomy. Um, that you know, there's basically that's not benefiting from digital economics. Um, I mean, but there's some, there's some, there's some, you know, cost efficiencies on the distribution uh, side. But that's not that's that's not an example of, of what we're talking about well, here. No, that I disagree. A classic Adam. I disagree. You know, case. No, I disagree because I think what it is getting at is this value to having this large base of users. Let's let's go back to the Microsoft software example. So the Microsoft software example, it costs millions of dollars to develop a, a piece of the piece of software. Uh, Gates understands that the marginal cost, that is the cost of selling one more unit, having spent those high fixed costs, is very, very small. So he prices it very relatively low. Well, and, actually, he, you, would, you would hope that he, he would. In fact, he prices it at $300. Well, but so, it's still so. a fraction of – and there's all kinds of discounts for educational users. and But it's still a fraction – just stick with the economies of scale for a minute. One of the reasons he does that is he wants a large base of Microsoft users – who are going to communicate with each other, right? In, in the rich early days of these kind of software challenges, right, right. it was worthwhile to price below marginal cost or price below uh, some measure of cost because to get that initial scale of users was extremely valuable. Now, again, no matter how valuable that is, it's still not going to be zero. So what's driving zero is something a little different, I suspect, the Yahoo! Google story. It's that you're going to get access to these folks for other purposes, uh, either that they use all your other stuff because they, they, they're used to your configuration, your brand, you're selling them other stuff, or you're advertising. So let's, let's, talk, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how do these people make money? Because yeah. in a standard model, and one of the things I really do like about this example uh, in your whole story is how it kind of sits – turns the standard economics story on its head. Obviously, there's a part of it that's standard economics. Economies of scale, drive price down, uh, marginal cost is close to zero. But the standard view of economics, which I think is too simplistic, it says, well, you know, to make money, you, 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 to be in business, you got to make money. So free can't exist because if, if marginal cost is so low that it ends up not being a penny – but free, well, then you don't have any revenue. And what that uh, misunderstood, that sort of textbook naivete, is the, is the ability of people in the actual marketplace to find ways to make money as they give stuff away. So let, let's talk about that because I think that is a crucial part of the story. So I, I am I am um, in the media business. I uh, run a magazine. Um, we have a big website. Um, I work for Condé Nast, a big a big. Um, a big uh, Magazine publisher. Um, the media business has always been built around free. 
Um, we, you know, uh, radio is free to air. Tele- television is, is 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 for many free to air. Um, our websites are all free. Um, you know, our, our print publications are subsidized to the point that they might. As- Some of them are, in fact, free. That's called controlled circulation. Some of them are subsidized to the point they might as well be free. And it's often been said that if you can understand why they sell newspapers and boxes on the street that don't. They don't limit how many copies you take. You'll understand the newspaper business. They're not selling newspapers. They're selling what they're selling is an audience to an advertiser. It's a, third, it's a third-party pays model. So what you what you have here is just is is you know the media model is a three is a three-party uh, business where you have producer, you have a consumer, and then you have the third party who pays for access to the consumer. Um, the you know the, the media business, which is which and that model has existed for a hundred years, is now becoming is now becoming you know one of the core business models for anything on the internet, um, media or content or of, of all sorts or software or services. Um, the ability to do a, thir- a, thir- a third party pays model allows you to 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 make things free to the consumer because you're delivering a a quantified audience to an advertiser who will market to them. Um, so that's so that is that is a, that's, that's that's not even shocking or 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 unusual. It's a little surprising that the media model has now proved so 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 you know so so broadly applicable that is sort of taking over all these other businesses that you know that never never could be advertising supported before. But it isn't a, it doesn't disrupt economics in, the, in any special way. Um, the, you know the 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 other ways to make money are. Um, you know, the, the things like freemium. You know, where you, you know, where where you, you give away. You know, the ninety nine get free, one percent paid. To things like, um, uh, like like labor exchange. Um, you mentioned the the survey thing, but uh, one of the examples I use in the article is Google's directory assistance service called Goog Goog four one one. Um, in that case, you which is call spectacular, your, by the way, which is fantastic. Incredible. You can call G O O G four one one. You know, directory assistance, absolutely free. Call on your cell phone, whatever. Um, no advertising. No, no one's monetizing your earballs or whatever the phrase yeah. would be. Your what they're, what you're doing, whether you know it or not, is training their speech recognition algorithms. Um, it turns out that that you know, uh, training speech recognition to understand the human voice is one thing. Training it to understand regional accents, to understand proper nouns, to know the difference between you know Joe's Diner and you know and and uh, Jose's Diner or whatever in a regional accent um, um, requires someone to say no. You know, you say, uh, you say, I'm looking for Joe's Diner. They say, do you want you know, Jose's, Jose's Diner? And you say no. That act of saying no has basically tra- training their algorithm and creating something of value to them, which is why they're willing to give you a, value, a, service, a valuable service for free. So, and, and then you have the last one, which, I, which, we, which we have to talk about, which is the whole freaky thing of the gift economy. You know the Wikipedia's, the Craigslist, the blogosphere, where there's no mon- no one's making money Linux, at all, yeah. and yet and yet and yet things of value are created. Yeah, that is an extraordinary thing. Uh, now some of those are are uh, reputational, right? A person might play with a software design or something like that to sh- to create a reputation as a quality person that they would then be able to sell to an employer. But yeah. many of these things are not that of that nature. Wikipedia is not of that nature. Uh, I, I'm awed by it, to be honest. I find it just extraordinary, uh, the glorious stuff that gets done for free, uh, that's that's created for free and given away for, for at no charge. Yeah. By the I way, mean, I think the problem with the, uh, with economics, and I say this as as, as someone who basically. 
uh, thinks of economics as being the sort of you know the you know God's model, um, you know the right toolkit to look at most things. The problem is that it really is it's really it's really oriented largely around monetary economies, and we've largely assumed that you know monetary incentives you know perceived one way or another are the best way to get you know to to get people to do things, and the recognition of all these non-monetary incentives. Um, like like reputation, attention, expression, etc., that prove not only to be sufficient to generate, you know, things we used to have to pay for, but often better at at at, at, at generating participation, encouraging people to donate their labor. That that is, I think, you know, the the sort of you know the the brave new world of of of, of our investigations of our research here. And the question is, you know. Is economy even economics even the right word? I mean, can you really have an attention economy? What's the what's the money supply of attention? Can you have a reputation economy? What's the money supply of reputation? Is this, you know, are, are we have we broken the metaphor of economics? Have we, have we bent the metaphor of economics to the point of breaking, or can that 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 um, you know algorithmic? you know, rational process extend to these new non-monetary economies? That's a good question, and we've been talking about that indirectly in the last couple of podcasts. We've been talking about the economics of community and, and the extent to which economics deals with love and courage and the virtues in a podcast with Deirdre McCluskey. Um, I will say that that Adam Smith in his uh, second most uh, successful book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, the one that people haven't heard as much of, uh, it does talk a lot about the non-monetary aspects of what we care about, that we live a lot um, for pride and ego and courage and reputation, and, and that that's a very obviously important part of the human enterprise. But our standard economic tools aren't particularly good at it. Uh, in my early days as an economist, uh, in a more academic mode, I wrote on the economics of charity, and economics has something to say about altruism. Uh, but what I think it doesn't do very good at is what you're really saying in, in the algorithmic kind of way. If you think about the market for these things, and I think we I think we understand the individual motivation, and, and I think we're getting even more sophisticated in how we think about it as economists. But what we're not so good at is making predictions about, say, which markets will work better as, as gift markets rather than for-profit markets. I think we have nothing to say about that virtually. Uh, we always have an ex post explanation. So it's easy to say ex post. Well, Wikipedia's people enjoy being part of it. So they get satisfaction and it's non-monetary. And the greater the non-monetary satisfaction, the more they'll do of it. But that's ex post. Ex ante, economists would have had trouble anticipating Wikipedia as a quality product. They would have said, well, maybe it'll exist, but it won't be very good. The idea that it could exploit the wisdom of crowds and the, the pooled knowledge of, of interested experts without any compensation, that w I don't think anybody would have predicted that, and uh, it's a very pleasant surprise. I agree. Well, we've been talking about people contributing things via software or online websites, et cetera. Uh, let's talk about a different kind of giveaway, which we touched on earlier, which uh, I think you have some interesting psychological insights on, which is the difference between free versus a penny. Uh, talk about why that's important and how it's making a difference. Yeah, this is what what I, uh, some venture capitalists have called the, the penny gap. And you know, from an economic perspective, um, 
you know, the difference between one cent and zero cent probably isn't significant. Um, and yet, psychologically, the chasm is, is, is often uncrossable. Um, what, what happens is that, is that there is, there's this, I'm, I'm imagining this switch in our brain, this little sort of flag that goes up. And every time, this is the sort of, this is the is it worth it flag. Every time we're forced to make a choice or a decision as a consumer um, that involves price, we do this sort of imperfect calculus, which, was, which, which we look at the price, we then try to estimate the value to us, um, possibly some, you know, some sort of, you know, um, relevant, um, you know, com- comparables, um, and then ask ourselves, is it worth it? And, you know, th- th- that, that, that little bit of calculus is, is, is actually, a, you know, a work, and it makes us tired. <laughs> and it's sometimes more work to even ask the question than it is to, to, you know, just reach into our pocket and pull out the penny. And, you know, if you... Um, the problem with micropayments, the problem with the one cent, you know, model, is that it basically invokes the entire apparatus of the whole kind of, you know, is it worth it price value calculation in our heads, and go, we go through this entire exercise for almost no monetary gain. Um, so it's got the it's got the psychological baggage of a price without the economic virtue of a price. And so, and so the general the general premise, and this is basically the kind of the the, you know, the stake in the heart of micropayments is that, you know, why not, why not just round down? Why not go straight to zero, take the whole psychology of is it worth it off the table, and, um, and find some other way to make money that doesn't, that doesn't invoke that, 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 that same decision process? Well, I agree with you that, that, that zero has a little bit of a qualitative difference from free. I'm not sure that the calculation part's the essence of it. There's obviously the transactions cost, the reaching into the wallet, and the, the keeping track of things on both sides of, of buyers and sellers. Um, you know, the 1% has the advantage of you do make a cent on each customer, and a lot of business models have avoided free. And have you know systematically uh, charged quote low amounts. Uh, it's Walmart's model. Uh, it's uh, Southwest Airlines' model. I think they've been very successful in uh, just saying cheaper, 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 better and cheaper, and keep working that model. Uh, they are not crossing into um, into the zero range because their brick and mortar costs are too real. I suspect, but there is a psychological impact. The you know, question is whether it's important or not. Economists, yeah. economists tend to under underweigh the psychological impact. I see it at work when I go to a baseball game. I don't know if you've been to a baseball game lately, but one of the things they do in the in the middle of the game, in between innings, is uh, a bunch of people. Usually, it's the mascot and uh, some women and a few men. It's it's a weird collection of really cheerful looking people with the mascot, and they take a um, mortar, a a cannon. And they fire T-shirts into the crowd. T-shirts are, uh, you know, they're they're worth something. They're worth a few a few bucks, but they're not they're not fancy. Um, and they don't fire very many. They fire about twenty. It's fun to watch this cannon thing work that fires T-shirts. And the zeal of the crowd <laughs> for something for nothing is a little bit scary. Uh, you see the same phenomenon when a foul ball goes into the stands. Of course, there's more there than just free. There's a memory and all kinds of things. But there does seem to be uh, – free does have a way of working on us. Uh, it, it, I'm sure there's some kind of chemical aspect to it that neuroeconomists have started to look at. We'll, we'll have to look into that. But 
The psychological well, impact is quite quite impressive, I suspect. There's the, yeah, that, there's of course the difference between real people and economists. The you know the the, the famous <laughs> joke about the you know the the, uh, the you know the economist in the non-economist walking down the street and the non-economist notices the you know the ten dollar bill on 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 the on the ground. Economist says it couldn't be there because if it, if it were ten dollars, the marketplace would have yeah, picked it up. Somebody would have picked um, it up already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the the reality is is that is that we are imperfect. We are imperfect animals, and although we may not want the T-shirt, maybe we maybe you know the cost of the T-shirt is insignificant to us. The free has a sort of a magic quality that does that does it both it both sort of you know grabs your attention, turns on all of your greed instincts, um, and also we're sort of rightly suspicious of it since we've been sort of suckered by free so many times in the past by things that that weren't actually free. Uh, my point only on micro on micro transactions and micro payments is that. Is that you know if you if you know to get back to our kind of you know our founding you know um, uh, mantra um, that in a competitive market price falls to the marginal cost um, you know if the marginal cost is falling closer and closer to zero and your price were to follow it in lockstep you know eventually you get to a number so small that you might as well just round down. Well, you might that's as well true. just say, you know what, this is not this is not a game I'm going to win long term. That's well, and I think the real insight there is that. If you can round down and save the transactions costs and invoke those magical um, endorphins or whatever get released when we think we've gotten something free, of course, there's no free lunch. We've got to mention that here as always, but something that, that looks close to free or at least has a zero marginal cost so that either we don't have to think direct out of pocket, we don't have to think about it, or it just it, it's highlighting some part of our brain that, that we uh, are um, – or endowed with, then you've got to find some other way to collect revenue. And of course, to the extent that those transactions costs are large, then the, the um, alternative revenue source is not as as challenging. It is an interesting question, by the way, to think about areas of the economy where there's a missing opportunity for free, uh, stamps being a, an example to think about for a minute. Stamps are really a nuisance to keep track of. Um, it's weird that you don't get a membership. And the reason, one reason, possibly, right? Yeah, I mean, on postage. Postage. Why don't you just get a membership? Uh, you know, the FedEx has a membership. You, you just pay. You don't have to have the funny little thing. You just give them cash, and they these stamps of which you speak. Yes, almost, I, I can't remember the last time I've I used a stamp. I, there, there's only two kinds. There's, there's two kinds of mail I send. There's email, and then there's the mail that's pre-postaged envelopes that people send me. Well, they're kind of dying out because of the transactions costs of keeping track of the little sticky things, and it's really annoying. They keep changing it, the prices, and then and they you have to sort the, of you know, co- cobble together penny stamps into a big it, mess. Which is really so, annoying. And so yeah. it, it is, there's an end run going there with, the, with email, phone calls, uh, uh, you know, other forms of, of communication. But it is interesting that, that the uh, government-run post office keeps that incredibly costly little sticky thing. And... Uh, the other forms of, of mail, like FedEx, have chosen to use not – don't use stamps. They just let you pay cash. But the real issue would be is there a way to let people not just avoid the stamps but mail all they want and pay a fixed uh, cost up front or some well, other sure. way? If you're, if you're a business, that's exactly what you do. You, you, have, a, you have a barcode, right. um, and you mail all you want, and they keep track, and at the end of the month, presumably, they send you a bill. But it's even better not to keep track, right? What you re- the ideal world would be one – where you don't have to keep track, where the marginal cost is so low. It's not in the case of mail. It's not low enough. Yep. We, we, we call that spam. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly email, and that's, and that's what you get. That's true. You yeah, get, you get true. the tragedy of a common. But let's move to the cases that you identify in the article where people have found a way to charge something very close or actually zero 
and make their money elsewhere. Uh, you give the example of, of airfare and music. Can you talk about those? Sure. I mean, it, it, a lot of the examples we've talked about, um, you know, where it comes out of the digital realm, where where you have a kind of a you know a, a real a, you know directional change, um, and, you know, a new phenomenon in the input costs of these uh, these industries um, where things are falling. But it's possible to to use technology and um, you know kind of increasingly flexible markets to take business uh, businesses where the underlying costs really aren't changing or maybe are going up and still invoke free um, by sort of redefining the business you're in. And the, the best example, or the, one of my favorite examples is, is that of, of air travel. Um, Ryanair, um, I was in, in the UK uh, late last year, took a flight from London to Lisbon for five pounds. Um, and, you know, you which, see, is how much, you, which is how much in, a, which, in American which is, dollars? Which is what, eight, eight bucks, seven bucks, okay. something like that? That's a, uh, that's a bargain. Seems like a, seems like a bargain. Seems like... Under under the cost of providing the the seat to get you there, it, 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 certainly, it certainly does. And so, and so you know, I, I got to say that a price like that sort of sort of you know um, focuses the mind. You know, what the heck is going on here? And and what what is going on here is that they've redefined the business they're in. They're not in the in the in the chair on a plane business. They're in a kind of a much whole broader kind of travel and stuff around its business. So they so they make their money from you know rental cars and hotel reservations and from the cargo that they carry on the hold. That's why they charge you for your baggage because you're displacing paying cargo. They charge you um, you know a lot for their sandwiches. They're in the they're in the water business, the drinks business. They're in the duty free business. They're in the advertising business, both on the website and on the on the on the screens in the back of their. Plane. Um, they get subsidies from the kind of off-the-beaten-path uh, the, the locations that they fly to because they're bringing tourists. And the, and the CEO, Ryanair, has promised to make the flight absolutely free, zero, um, by introducing gambling. Um, the planes will be flying casinos, and um, you know, much as you get a, you can get free drinks in Las Vegas, um, you can get a free flight if you gamble um, in, in the air. So that's, you know... The underlying gas prices, the fuel, jet fuel prices are going up. The cost of airplanes is, is not changing. But technology has, has, has incredibly lowered the cost of everything around the, uh, the, the flying experience and allowed them to be in a much bigger business, including tourism generally, travel generally, package delivery, um, and advertising uh, businesses, and even gambling. Things that are not traditionally considered part of the airline business, but could be if you're creative about thinking about, uh, about uh, where to get your revenues. Well, let's think about pricing a little more widely in the airplane example because I think it raises a number of interesting cases. First, you know, one of the problems with these kind of models, and it may prove to be uh, viable, it may prove not to be viable, but the, one of the problems, of course, is that if you make it free but you can gamble while you're there, it tends, it might tend to attract people who don't like to gamble but just want the free flight, and they can't generate the revenue they need to cover their costs, and they don't make it. Similarly, if you advertise, that's a lovely idea, but you've got to hope that the people who are on the plane actually then buy the products or at least notice the products the second or third time when they're advertised elsewhere, else otherwise the people won't pay. Well, that is that is uh, that last proposition is unprovable, and you basically you know that is the that is the, the mystery of advertising for the last hundred years. You're not I, quite. I, it won't be solved now, and it hasn't been a, been a huge barrier before. Right. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I do think it's an interesting idea, though. To instead of putting just a, a cheesy little ad on the back of the seat, you know, uh, have a, a, a performing troupe of 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 the stewardesses and stewards who actually talk constantly uh, about the about the virtues of, of a particular. 
uh, set of maybe luggage or something related to travel or uh, wow right or the hotel the, the hotels or rental cars uh, in fact how about a com- in, in, in the free section you're constantly harassed exactly the, just like by the, the steward, by the flight attendant right it's just like the free section of you know many software programs you get yeah. you get the pop-ups and the ads but it's free human pop-up ads or even better it's just limited legroom you know it's just it's the same as the free email program used to be uh, the free version you get you only have a certain amount of storage. You want a large amount. You got to pay. That's the premium. Yeah, sure, so sure. the premium part of the airplane, comfortable seats, uh, uh, people who bring you drinks, etc. In the back of the airplane, uh, it's uh, nonstop harassment with uh, all kinds of uh, ads and, well, and look, no. We already room. have dynamic pricing on on flights between different classes and different times yeah, of, right. uh, of purchasing. Let's just let's just go rather than you know sort of tiers of prices. Let's bring one of them down to zero. Yeah, and that and that guy in front of you who likes to lean back, right, really far and ruin your can't, so you can't get your laptop open, that guy uh, should just give you a fiver, uh, and and for the privilege you'd be and you're thrilled. Sure, you're miserable for the four hour flight, but uh, you've got the five bucks. Now it is interesting, you know, Julian Simon, uh, the late great Julian Simon, is the economist who actually did something useful. Uh, many of us uh, merely toil on the vineyards of, of academia, but he is the person who proposed to the airlines that when they overbook, which is generally a good idea, but then you have the cost of overbooking. There's a benefit of overbooking, which is that you don't get stuck with half-empty flights. The cost yeah, of overbooking is sometimes there aren't people who cancel at the last minute or enough. So he's I, the guy who said, let's auction off the, the seats. And uh, you know, it's a brilliant and wonderful thing, and it works. And it, what, just as an aside, it fascinates me it's very awkward to do that kind of solution in an informal way. When it's organized via the airline, everybody just thinks, oh, this is normal. But let's take the $5, the guy in front of you wants to lean back. If the guy in front of me said, you know, I'm really tired. I want to put my seat all the way back. In fact, I'm going to rest it on the, your legs. You're not, not only am I going to cut into your leg room, but we're going to put this on the seat so I can go all the way back. But I'll give you 20 bucks. You'd be horrified. But the fact that there's different parts of the airplane that have different amounts of legroom and you pay different amounts, everyone's totally understanding of that. I, saw this, it's totally I saw this happen. I agree. I saw, I saw this happen at the airport the other day. It was a plane that was overbooked. They said, okay, we're going to give everyone uh, you know, a $500 voucher if they'll take the next flight. And, um, you know, and, 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 not, and not enough people do, did. And there was this woman who said, I need to be there for a business meeting. I will, I will, I will add another $500. She said this out loud. I will add another $500. I'll give you $500 cash right now. And you get the airline's $500. And, if you will take your seat. And economics predicts two, two, two possibilities there. One is people started fighting and clawing to get at her. The second possibility is everybody looked down at their shoes, which happened. I, it, it, the third possibility, which is that very quietly someone came up <laughs> and took, it took her offer and did it. But you, know, you, you do enough of that, and you got, a, you got real class warfare on, your, on, your, on your hands. You basically sort of got you know, the, the rich, you know, you know, elbow their way to the front of the line, and the poor, you know, sit there with their grubby money in their pocket, you know, feeling feeling like you know, a they've missed they missed their flight, and b they're they they you know they they could be disadvantaged for for something that was obviously a trivial amount of money to that rich person. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't think of it as class issue. I, I really think of it as a set of, a set of cultural norms. Let, let's take because uh, sometimes it's not the rich person, it's just the person who urgently needs to get there is willing to pay a premium if they're not rich. But let the example I like to think of is the grocery line. So you're in a hurry. Uh, your wife's delivering. Uh, you've got a bleeding child in the car. You're racing, you know, but you had to run in and grab something. In the, okay, it's a bit absurd, but uh, 
you get for whatever reason you've got to get out of the grocery quickly and the even the quick line has six people in it if you say to those six people folks i'm really sorry i i know there's a line but uh i've got uh i've got appendicitis and i got to rush to the hospital and you show them the, the you know the scar or whatever uh they'll all say oh no go ahead if you say i'm in a hurry here's 20 bucks for all of you uh split it up and you cut in line Nobody thinks it's um, attractive. So I, I really exactly money's degrading. I, I take it off the table. Yeah, I do think there's a role just of transactions versus yeah. cultural norms. So exactly. And what, you know, look, we, we, we're used to thinking about thing, things in terms of monetary incentives, but there's a lot of non-monetary incentives, and that's really what we're seeing online. Um, you said something earlier, which is that we we're going to have to get to this sort of no such thing as a free lunch. Mm-hmm. And I've been wanting someone. I've been wanting to to ask a proper economist why I can't why I can't prove this wrong. Um, once and for all, um, and 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 now I'm going to take this opportunity if you don't mind. All right, sure. So so you know the the, the no such thing as a free lunch um, is basically a you know a statement about externalities, which is to say if you know the, if you think it's free, it's only because you're not properly accounting the externalities. No, not exactly. No? Let, let, let me let me try it a different way. Um, here's the way I do it with my students. I say um, so as I go up to you and um, we might be friends, we we might not be friends. Let's say we're sort of friends, and I say uh, Chris, you know. Um, you seem like a great guy. Uh, I want to take you to lunch. And you say, well, I, I'm kind of, and I say, well, I'm going to take you to a really a fancy restaurant. And you say, well, you know, I'm kind of down on my funds right now, I, down on my luck. I, I'd rather not. And I say, no, 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 no. It's free. It's on me. Now, true or false? Is it, is it free? And I, that's where I start with my students. Now, the answer is no. And it's the first answer that the students usually give when I say, is it free, is they say, well, you might be expected to reciprocate, Right. And I said, no, let's pretend that, Chris, you're a horrible person. You have no intention of reciprocating. In fact, maybe you even get pleasure from knowing that you're going to take my free lunch and not ever, ever invite me back. Then the second possibility is, well, it's not free because there's an expectation that I'm going to ask you for something down the road. And I think psychologically people have trouble saying no when they've been given something in the past. But let's suppose, again, you're a conscious free person. It doesn't affect you at all. And again, maybe you even revel in the fact that you're not going to uh, do my favor when I ask you having taken you to lunch once already. Uh, so is it free then? And the answer is, well, no. And in, in, in many senses, it, it may be free to you. And that's the sense, I think, in which your, your article and idea is about. It, it very well could be free to you, but it isn't going to be free to someone. It's going to be – there's a cost to me. Now, let's suppose I have a uh, – let's say the owner of the restaurant is a friend of mine, and he just likes having uh, you in the restaurant with me having a conversation. So in that sense, it doesn't even cost me anything, but of course then it costs the owner something. But suppose the food was given to him. But then the food could have been given to someone else. So the idea in economics when we say that nothing's free is that everything has a, the, the fancy, ugly jargon is an opportunity cost, that something else could have been done with those resources, even when there's no out-of-pocket. So but I don't you, think it, You will grant me, though, that from my perspective, if I'm sort of saying, you know, I, I'm not talking about, you know, where, where all the value and money changes hands elsewhere. I'm just talking about my, as, as a consumer, as your guest at lunch. Mm-hmm. I can say that it is entirely and fully free to me. Yeah, and I'll give you the ex- – well, except for one little other thing, which I'll get to in a sec. Um, yeah, l- one example would be uh, you're walking down the street, and 
as you're walking, it doesn't even slow you down. Someone presses into your hand a, uh, a piece of paper that you immediately, instantaneously recognize as a, a, a coupon for a meal at this great restaurant. So you have no out-of-pocket costs. You don't even have to deal with, um, with, with my conversation, which is another non-zero cost of this, quote, free meal, right? You're going to have to talk to me. Of course, you could daydream and gaze off into the distance and pretend to listen, but that wouldn't be as good a set of daydreaming and gazing off into the distance if you were by yourself. So even That's there, right. what there, were you saying? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to have trouble paying attention and pretending to pay attention. It's going to affect the quality of your daydreaming. So, but in this case, it's just a free meal in the sense that there's no out-of-pocket. You don't have to listen to me. There's no fear that you have to reciprocate. I'm not going to ask you a favor. You're not going to invite me back on your dollar. But even in that case, of course, there's the time it takes to eat the meal. So that's a sense in which that meal isn't free in the literal sense. Uh, it's free in the out-of-pocket sense. It's free in the way people use the word in everyday language. But economists love to talk about these kind of examples where if you think about it long enough, there is a cost. It may not, right. it may so not be So that's what I would call an externality. That's, that's, the, that's the attention cost. Yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't call it an externality, and, but know, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say Wikipedia's – Wikipedia's, you know, no one's monetizing your eyeballs, but but Wikipedia takes your time. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's the price you pay. When you say my time, my time as a contributor or my time as a reader. I meant as a reader, but yeah, you know, we we, we could argue the the other way as well. Yeah, but that's again that cost we we'd all understand is is tiny, and it's and it's zero compared to the alternative uh, that I'd have to look at the information somewhere else. If I if I want to know, right? If I want to know. Um, uh, the capital of um, of France, and I go to Wikipedia versus some other site that has a charge. Well, Wikipedia, they both have the eyeball cost, and then Wikipedia has the the zero out of pocket. So it's about as close to free as you can get. It's a pretty good deal. Again, the economists would say the cost there isn't to the reader; it's to the contributor and to the uh, Wikipedia itself that's put up the server space and the time. Uh, to to make it fairly quick, right? And is that what Milton pretty, Friedman meant? I think did, it is. Did he mean what you said? I hope so, because um, I like to think of uh, of him as a, as an intellectual mentor, and and I hope I'm getting it right. If anyone out there thinks I'm wrong, they're welcome to. But I think that's what Friedman went by. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, which actually came, I think, was first uh, stated by. Uh, by Heinlein, the, the science fiction writer, I think is where that story is. It derives from, um, from uh, 19th century Sam, San Francisco bars, oh, really? um, where you would get, uh, if you drank um, uh, more than one beer, you could get a free lunch. Hmm. But the idea that there wasn't one comes from Heinlein, and then Friedman popularized it in this. That sounds right. In this Tonstoffel uh, formulation, there ain't no such thing as a free uh, lunch. My, by the way, my favorite uh, sign in a saloon or a bar is. The permanent sign that says "free beer tomorrow." Yeah, yeah, I know that's that's uh, that's that shows up in all my textbooks. Actually, uh, that's one of my favorites. I've always loved that. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever actually seen it, but it's been told to me. It is a classic. Uh, let's let's go back to a topic uh, we touched on earlier. Uh, and and again, I invite our our listeners, both professional economists and otherwise, to critique our conversation of free lunch. Um, but we talked earlier about media as newspapers as a, really an, a, a non-virtual example well long before the internet that basically either charged way below marginal cost 
for the product and, and made it up on revenue by expanding the base of readers. Or in the case of many uh, publications in, in cities, uh, the Chicago Reader being – or the Boston Phoenix being examples where they they give it away, literally. There's no out-of-pocket cost, and they count on the fact that it's a high-quality product, that people want to read it even though it's, quote, free. And they make up their revenue to cover the cost of paying their writers with uh, the revenue that they can generate from ads knowing that thousands and thousands of people are reading it. So I want to hear your thoughts as a – New and old media person, Wired Magazine is in print and it is online, as to the viability of that model down the road for the media. Well, um, you know, there's a great irony in this, which is that, you know, which is that, you know, free is, is, as you just said, is, is sort of the foundation of modern media. The third, the three-body problem, where the, where the third party, the advertiser, pays for access to the second party, the consumer who gets the product for free or close to it. The basis of our industry. Um, what's, what's, what's interesting is, is that, um, that. You know, the good news of the media model, the advertiser-driven model, is that it's expanding to all sorts of new domains beyond media. So Google, you know, search engines, email, and all that sort of stuff is also driven by the by the media model, even though it's not a media company. And, you know, software services and, and all sorts of content online um, end up being advertising-driven, even though they're not, no one would consider them media companies. Meanwhile, the media companies themselves, the newspapers in particular is the best example, are, are losing ground um, as, 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 as the model becomes, um, becomes uh, you know, as, as they have to compete with measurable, um, more effective forms of, uh, of advertising, such as Google's AdWords and AdSense, etc. So, so the media model is sort, of, is sort of, you know, failing the media, but succeeding everywhere else. Um, you know, I, I hasten to add at this point that we at Condé Nast are a huge exception to this rule. Um, because of course, you're we, making money hand over fist. Because we make money hand over fist, uh, but we do something the internet doesn't easily compete with, which is the sort of the, you know, the glossy packaging of, of, of you know, of high-end magazines and long form and photography and design, all that. Um, but that said, um, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, it, it is, it is um, the problem with the media model as it applies to media is that it is the kind of thing we were talking about earlier, the non-measurability of the whole thing. The sort of assumption um, that there is this level of engagement with the media that, can, that is transferred and conferred to the advertisements that run alongside it. Yeah. You know, other things that the sort of whole Google generation is starting to challenge, you know, the, the, the shift from pay-per-view, pay-per-pay-per-pay-per impression versus pay-per-click, you know, from non-measurable to measurable, etc. So it's... Um, now, the problem with going? the traditional media model is that, is that they don't have a good way to prove that it works. Well, I'm not sure it does work. I, I, I'm, not, I'm always skeptical of claims like that, but let's pretend that we know that it doesn't. Let's pretend, for example, that – you know, let's take TV as a good example. You know, regular non-cable, non-satellite TV in the old days was zero out of pocket other than the, t- for the receiver. But the marginal cost was zero. Watching one more hour of TV wore out your machine, your television maybe a little bit, kind of. But basically there was no purview charge. And they obviously covered the, co- the incredible costs of production of these TV shows through advertising. Now, I'm sure the early advertisers worried that, reasonably so, that people would just leave the room during that time or you know, veg out or turn the sound down or change the channel. All those things happened and do happen, and yet – TV seems to be a viable way, at least for a long time, was a viable way to to bring entertainment into people's houses. It's not clear to me that the internet is going to be able to do that. Most of us hate pop-up ads. We don't no. enjoy them the way 
we enjoy a little bit of TV. So I think, I think just in the same way that I'm not comfortable with the word media anymore, because media sort of implies professional, um, you know, professional institutions, a, uh, institu- you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, a business, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, trained, uh, you know, um, writers and editors. Um, whereas the reality is, is that we're competing largely with blogs and, you know, and Facebook and MySpace and individuals. So I don't really know what media means anymore. I, by the same token, I don't really know what advertisement means anymore. So, um, You've described, you know, 30-second spots, radio spots, banner ads, glossy, glossy pages in the magazine. We're now switching online to a world uh, where advertisement is just, it's just lines of text, just a couple words that are algorithmically selected as being relevant to the content they're running up against. Now let's go a little bit further. Now let's, now let's, now let's you know, but at least they're separated. At least, you know, if you look closely enough, you'll see this is an ad and this is edit. But what about, you know, the blogs? That, you know, some of my favorite blogs are written by Microsoft engineers about their particular projects. Is that is that an ad? I, I don't I don't think so. And yet they're clearly promoting a commercial product. Um, it completely blurs the line. You know, all everything online is driven by the most powerful force in the universe, which is ego. You know, we we all contribute in in a way to kind of promote ourselves. Um, and you know, in a sense, we're all advertising. Sure. Every post I make on every one of my of my four blogs, uh, you know, some of which you know about, some of which you don't, is, is, You'll send is them if to I'm me. completely we'll... honest about myself, is 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 a little form of you know of of, of self promotion. I'm I'm in my Vanity. own. I'm a one man advertising bureau for the brand called me. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think, by the way, you know, I think the challenge, one of the reasons the media is having so much trouble, is they can't figure out the old style media. They can't figure out where that line starts and ends, right? And having said that, I know that doesn't mean anything, so I'll try to make it clear in a second. But having said that, uh, the new media needs the old media, most of us. Most of us who blog are relying on the existence of online newspapers to critique and make fun of and, and analyze. And we would have a much harder time generating... Ooh, I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you at the word most. Most of the best ones? Most of the no, interesting you, you, ones? You, you, have no, you have no factual basis for that word most. True. You just you just don't know, and neither do I. Well, I'm thinking of my blogs. That's a sample of one. Okay. <laughs> uh, a lot of what I do and what I think others do is write about what others do and others say. It's true we could write about each other's blogs, and some people do that. But I think without the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wired Magazine to 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 put in the URL and link to it and critique it and talk about it, it would be a different. The blogosphere would be a very different place. So I won't quantify it and say most, but I think it would be a very different place. Uh, but I like your point about advertising and that line being unclear. But what I was saying when I was going off into gibberish, what I meant to say was this: you know, the, there's a weird competition going on. There's a bunch of people out there like you and me, and and hundreds of others, and maybe a few thousand others who are giving stuff away that we used to charge for. Right? We're basically running our own magazine. That, that's what that blog is, where we're the editor. And yep. f- strangely enough, uh, we like most of what we write, and it gets through the filter. And yep. so we post a lot um, when we have, find the time. And that's in competition with the Boston Globe and the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. And There's more of us than there are of them. There and are. Even though, even though none of us are necessarily as good as any of them in aggregate, we do a better job because we because we ha- we can focus with infinite granularity on subjects of narrow relevance in the world, and the world lives in the in the in the, in the narrow, not the not the broad. And what's it, well, that's part of it. But the intriguing part to me is that the attempts to charge for the, the so-called higher quality product, the New York Times Premium, the Wall Street Journal, 
it's been incredibly hard, and it seems to be breaking down. And why does it break down? It breaks down because, quote, everyone else has decided to give it away. Why do they give it away? Because they're all... That, that's not. Well, I mean, that that that, that part of it. Uh, that, that's part of it. I mean, it, it's. It, you know, I mean, I. You said higher quality. What do you mean by quality? Um, th- there is nothing in the Boston Globe that is of higher quality to me than than you know than the, than the report of my son's soccer team. You know, uh, match this weekend. There's one thing that is though, and that's the Red Sox box score. Okay. See, that's that's right. what, and that. that's a serious remark. I, I, and yet, I don't need the Boston Globe for that, do I? Well, that's the problem. Is I can get it from ESPN, I can get it from Yahoo Sports, I can get it from 50 places who've decided for interesting competitive reasons to give it away rather than charge for it, which makes it impossible for the globe to charge for it. It's, so they can't. It, you know, it, it's, it's, really, it's really, there's two dimensions. There is commodity versus non-commodity and relevance. Um, if it's a commodity, i.e., I can get it other places, then you're then you know in a competitive market, price falls to the marginal cost, bingo, zero. And then there's relevance, which is to say the stuff that's most relevant to me is the stuff that's of narrowest appeal. Um, it's really just of interest to me, and I will pay. I'm price insensitive. I will pay anything yeah. for that for that information. But, um, the, but the problem is that for, you know, professional media organizations cannot scale down to the economic level. That's the problem, and as a result. Things that right now look like they've been driven down to marginal cost aren't quite at marginal cost. They're, they're at marginal cost, but if they're not covering those fixed costs of that building with all the nice, uh, the nice ceilings you've got in that loft in San Francisco, you either got to break that apart and send people home and have them telecommute or you, go, you close the doors if you can't figure out ways to generate enough revenue. Indeed. So that, well, that's what's interesting. It's just – it's not – my claim is the story's not over. We just don't know how it's going to turn out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going. Uh, maybe your readers can, your listeners can help on this. I'm, I've actually saw a, a brilliant quote uh, the other day, which I'm looking for the source for, which is some 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 in, in technology entrepreneur, software entrepreneur, web entrepreneur said, "What I love is finding four billion dollar industries that I can turn into a four million dollar industry." Hmm. Um, the idea being that there is no law that says that, that you know, any particular industry needs to remain the size it's at. It's at. When Craigslist demonetized half the newspaper industry by, by making classifieds free, um, that's, you know, that's the marketplace in action. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the beneficiaries are the millions of us who save a little bit of money on classifieds and have a better experience. The losers are a couple of institutions who, who didn't move with, the, move with the times. They demonetized an industry, and we're beating our breasts about, about what a tragedy it is. But, I mean, it's I great. think that's brilliant. No, it's and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and if the media industry becomes one-half the size of um, the media industry sort of narrowly defined as commercial, commercially, um, you know, commercial institutions who make media is half the size that it once was, you know, 50 years from now. But media as a, as a service and an information flow to consumers is 100 times better. I think that's a win. Oh, there's no doubt about it. But what will we talk about around the water fountain when we don't have the same shared experiences? There's always the weather. Yeah. No, I, I, it's a great point. And I, what, you're really, what you're really saying against my, uh, uh, my pessimism is um, uh, use your imagination. And you're right. Uh, who knows what the so-called media – the right way to think about it is the information business. Who knows how we'll get our information in 20 or 10 or 5 years? The fact that we won't get it the same way will probably be a very good thing. Right, right. And if I'm it sure weren't, that, you know, if it weren't, the, we, 
Sorry, go ahead. No, if it weren't, we'd go back to something else. There'd yeah. be an opportunity for somebody to do something else. I mean, 50 years ago, the typesetters unions were telling us that they were the last, you know, the last defenders of the fourth estate. That you know, they they were all that stood between us and tyranny. Yeah, that's you true. know, and now and now you know the you know the the bosses of you know the major newspaper companies are telling us the same thing, and they're just as wrong. Yeah, I agree. Well, anything else you want to say about free down the road, where it could stop, where it might go? My book's going to be free. Uh, how are you going to do that? I, I don't mean that's not a rhetorical question. That's yeah, a yeah, yeah. No, um, uh, well, the digital forms, um, audiobook, ebook, webbook, marginal cost is zero, so they're free. You know, absolutely. I mean, my, you know, I'm not in the book business. My publisher's in the book business, but I'm not in the book business. I'm in the sort of me business, which is to say, propagate my ideas far and wide and let me figure out how to monetize them. Um, and uh, you know, partly we monetize them because my, um, you know, as as my ideas and my and, and my name, you know, g- g- get out there. So does so Wired's name goes with it. So my bosses are happy. Partly I give speeches. You know, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll save the advertisement for later on this one, right. um, et cetera. So I want to I want to get the book out there and to be read as many people as possible. Um, How's your public? The, do you have a contract? I do. My publisher is Disney. And Hyperion. what is and what is Dis- Disney is going to. And so Disney, Disney, basically, um, I, I just, I just uh, have, have, have retained the digital rights to my um, myself, and with, um, so with they, no they restriction, with no restriction on pricing, et cetera. No, give, give them away. Um, then, um, then, uh, then there's the physical forms, and that what we're going to try to do. And we haven't signed any deals yet, so so you know, let's call this an ambition. We're going to try to make two physical forms of the book: one that is advertising supported and free, so there'll be a sponsor on the inside, front cover, inside, back cover, and maybe in the middle. And the question is that that's easy to do. The question, you know, like the cost of a book is about two bucks, right. so an advertiser just has to pay that. And the cost is how do you distribute that? Obviously, right. Barnes and Noble doesn't want to do it. So, so do you just distribute it at conferences, etc.? Maybe free to anyone who, who, who asks for metros. <laughs> you, you just okay. hand them out. That Washington Post does that. They hand them out as you get on the Washington Metro. They have a little miniature version. You don't give them the whole book. Well, Leave out know, the last then, chapter. But, but, you know, but there, there's this whole problem which we didn't talk about. There's a zillion cliches about free that I have to sort of you know, consider. But one of them is you get what you pay for. Do people value something less because it's free? And no, typically the answer is if, if it used to be if it used to be um, costly and now it's free, they tend to value it less. This is the sort of you know the village voice you know jumped the shark when it went free. Um, argument, and then there's things that that were sort of you know sort of were never paid for, and and people don't devalue them because they're free. This is Google get, search for they example. get mad when they're not free. Exactly. So how do I sort of reset expectations about what a book is, and and you know, so that people value it as if they paid for it, um, without them having to actually pay for it. So we have to think. So the challenge there is not is not how to pay for the book. The challenge is how to distribute it in a way that 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 invokes a kind of a positive psychological. Well, here, here, association. Here's what I think you want. You want to have three versions. You got your ad-supported one, you got your, quote, normal one that has no ads. Then you have, like, a super ad one. And in that one, you pay $5 to people just to take the book out of the pile. And what they find out when they open the book, they don't just get a sponsor and an ad. There's a chip in the book, so when they're on page 17 and you're mentioning something like uh, that airline, it'll be, fly Ryanair. We're wonderful. You know, that way, really, don't just have an ad at the front and the back. Let's make it work. I'll go even further. (laughs) I'm going to now call my book a form of carbon sequestration, and uh, we will oh, pay brilliant. people to take the book and to, and to throw it away in their local landfills because <laughs> that's taking a couple pounds of wood and carbon and yeah. taking it underground. And just subtly say, along the way, you might want to look through it. And that's you might find something right. If interest. 1% of them read it on the way to the <laughs> landfill, then hey. Hey, and wait till you take it to China. <laughs> just, just if it weren't clear, <laughs> we're joking. Yeah, kidding. Um, but I do think it's interesting to go back to your Disney uh, 
uh, publisher, did they give you the same roughly the same uh, royalty rate that they did on your that you got on your earlier books? Where there was royalty a, rate or yeah, advance? Royalty rate, not advance. Same royalty, yeah, yeah. Normally, by the way, by the way, if I were a braver man, yeah. I would have um, I would have uh, put my money where my mouth is and declined the advance entirely okay. nah. in, fa- in, 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 in favor of a higher royalty rate. No, I think you go the other way. Actually, I, I think this, no. I'm serious. I think the secret is to decline the royalty rate and ask for a lower cover price. Uh, oh, that's what that's what I think is the way to go. And ask for a big advance because that commits them to trying to market the book. Right. Well, then that, that, that's the dynamics of the book industry. But basically, if I believe that free books sell more books. That you know that 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 spreading an idea to more, more people, more um, yeah. then I would believe that I would benefit in in, in straight royalties. Yeah. Um, but leave, I'll leave that for my third book. Okay. Well, my guest today has been Chris Anderson, editor in chief of Wired, author of the forthcoming free, which will be free. His article for Wired magazine, free, I think is free, and we'll put a link up to it, as yeah. well as to his four blogs, uh, which you'll send to me, Chris, uh, when you have a chance. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.